Welcome to the Realtors Land Institute podcast, the voices of land, the industry's leading land real estate organization. Hello, this is Justin Osborne, accredited land consultant with the Wells Group Real Estate Brokerage. For today's RLI podcast, we're going to have Charles Porter, PhD. He is an award-winning author and speaker. He has been testifying real estate expert in over 600 cases nationwide and has served in various faculty teaching roles at St. Edwards University since 2008. In 2016, he earned a PhD in economics and business from the University James I in Spain with cum laude distinction. He is also a well-recognized water rights expert. He was recently appointed to the Education Standards Committee of the Texas Real Estate Commission. Thank you for being with us today, Charles. Glad to be here. Appreciate being here. Well, let's start. I thought maybe I'd start out with this. Uh, water rights is a, are very complicated across the United States. Uh, people tend to, it, you, like one of our federal judges said years ago in Texas, the eyes roll in the back of people's head when they start looking at it. One of the reasons is that if you consider the 50 states, there are three geological containers that we'll talk about of water in each state, and each container has a separate set of regulations. So that's 150 variables and overlaid as the federal government. So it gets to be complicated. So the core first question I think that we all ought to ask, and that is, why should real estate licensees and realtors in particular gain expertise in water rights? First of all, and above all else, it's part of our basic duties by law and standards. Uh, in Texas, we owe fiduciary duties to our clients. We have an overall duty to the public as well. Secondly, it had, water rights have tremendous implications on the fair market value of land. Uh, and whereas in America, we're concerned about what a private property owner can make, as far as profit or money from his water rights, the main thing we're concerned about is our cherished social values that are funded by an Aberhorn tax base. In Texas, our most cherished social value is public school education to the 12th grade. Uh, in general, Aberhorn tax rate in Texas is about 2.5% of value, and about half that goes to schools, the rest go to, to um, other public services. If a city like San Antonio, for example, the seventh largest city in the country, takes away the water from Castroville. Eventually, that Castroville Adborn tax base will, will decline. And that's something we'll talk about later on. The third thing I think that's really important is, and I've spoke about this for many years in my real estate classes, uh, we have to continue as brokers and agents to add value to all real estate transactions. Uh, if we don't, we're going to find Jeff Bezos and others whom I admire walking into our business. We have to understand water because it's an incremental part of that bundle of sticks that makes up a property right. In fact, I think guys like me would say that the key uh, stick in that bundle of sticks west of the Mississippi is the, is the property right, is the water right. Now, as we talk today, I want you brokers to and agents to Put your agent's hat on instead of your investor's hat, because there are two different hats to wear. As an investor, you owe fiduciary duty to yourself. Uh, you put your interests first. As a broker, you put your client's interests first. So think about that as we go through this process. Uh, one thing that you can that we all know is that our population is growing. 
Uh, and as the population grows, uh, we have more water demands. It's pretty simple, especially west of the Mississippi. Uh, I suspect we do have warming going on. I suspect there is climate change. That's outside my scientific expertise. But as an old Eagle Scout, we were taught to be prepared. And here in the West, we've got to be prepared for the worst. Uh, Texas especially, we're, we're looking at a firm yield water problem in by 2030 in Texas if we continue to grow. Uh, and that, that firm yield means water you can count on. Now, I guess the next big question is who owns water and whose rights shall prevail? Now, this is where people begin to be confused. And that is, since it's a national broadcast, keep one thing in mind when I start talking about this. There's no one size that fits all water policy in the United States. There's too much geographic diversity. In Texas, for example, the worst drought in Beaumont's history, where they get 55 inches a year uh, in an average year of rain, is 15 inches a year. That's almost, that's more than double sometimes what El Paso gets in a good year. So sitting in Austin, Texas, Texas legislatures have a problem with a one-size-fits-all policy. The same thing applies in the United States. You can pretty much figure that everything east of the 100th Meridian, which is about the Mississippi River, has a different set of water laws and rights than west of the Mississippi River. And we'll be talking about that. Now, there are two characteristics of water everywhere that applies to start out with. Number one, and you might want to write this down because it's a very key part of the way you can understand the water rights politics. We measure water on a policy level, not by the gallon, but by the acre foot. And that's how much volume of water it needs to cover one acre of land, one foot deep about the size of a football field. In every situation, that's 325,851 gallons of water. So you can see real quickly, when people have disputes about whether you want to transfer groundwater from one area of Texas or other states to another. The people that are against it will say they're trying to transfer 3,258,000 gallons of water. The people trying to transfer say, we're only going to transfer 10 acre feet. Same amount of water, very different connotation. The next thing to consider too that's important is every acre of land that receives one inch of rain every single time receives 27,154 gallons of water. That, that's why in Texas, since we're allowed to catch the water off our roof, if you could store it all, in Austin we, in a normal year, which never exists, 30 inches of rain means you could store 60,000 gallons of water. Now the other characteristic of water everywhere is we have one, one hydrological system, one cycle called the water cycle. Uh, you know, water, uh, the scientists tell me there's been one amount of water on Earth from day one. It's an interesting molecule. It changes its characteristics as it goes. And as it wanders through the water cycle, coming up from the ocean, con con condensates, rains down, snows down, sleeps down on the ground, that water molecule, if you follow it, as it seeks back sea level, in many states like Texas, it changes its characteristics and its ownership characteristics as it flows through that cycle like a chameleon lizard does. As it comes across the surface water, it's generally owned by the state. When it goes underground, often it's owned by the private landowner. And in between, there's what's called diffuse surface water, which we'll talk about. The other thing everyone needs to consider, which is one of our biggest problems in water rights in the United States is, we set up our water jurisdiction based on political boundaries. But water ignores one thing. It totally ignores political boundaries. We've got problems in some states. We set up our 
groundwater management based on county lines, not based on the aquifer. And it's, it can be can lead to some real conflicts. Now, how do you figure ownership, Dr. Porter? Well, you've got to look at it three ways. First of all, there are three geological containers of water. The first one is surface water. That's water that runs across the surface of the ground in a water course. We don't have time to go into the different definitions of water course, but basically running in a stream or a river or a creek. It doesn't always have to be continuous. It can be intermittent. And surface water across the whole United States is owned by the individual states themselves held in trust for the people, just like it was in the old days from the Spanish colonial days and even English common law. The next geological container is called diffuse surface water. That's water that comes down from the rain, comes down from the earth and, and uh, from the sky, uh, condensates, uh, it runs across the land. And if you can catch it in a stock tank or a rain barrel in many states, uh, it's your water as a landowner. You own it, you deal with it, it's yours. The third geological container is groundwater, which is the most important container now, which we'll talk about in a little while. In most, in about a dozen or more states, the landowner owns the water beneath you in the ground. Now, it's, it varies from state to state, and it gets to be rather complicated. Some states just don't mention it, so you basically have ownership yourself. But the bottom line, the three geological containers are surface water, diffuse surface water, and groundwater. And that's the way it, a realtor begins to look at and analyze what, where would he stand in regulations and ownership. In Texas, surface water is regulated by the TCEQ, Texas Commission of Environmental Quality. The few surface water is supposed to be in their jurisdiction, but they never pay much attention to it. And groundwater is basically managed by no one except local groundwater conservation districts. Uh, and those districts do not cover the entire state. So it, it varies again from state to state. I'm writing a new book about at the request of a publisher in New York about a state-by-state -state analysis of water rights. It'll come out in 2021. Uh, it's complicated because you've got 150 different variables in the 50 states to try to explain to folks. And I, I'm having trouble struggling with it to get it under about 5,000 pages. In general, keep in mind, west of the Mississippi, surface water has a different set of rights than east of the Mississippi. West of the Mississippi, we have appropriative rights to surface water, okay? And what that means is for you to use the surface water for anything outside domestic and livestock use, which has a whole different set of from state to state definitions, you've got to have a permit or a license to do so. Uh, Texas went through so many fights for years as other states did, they had their own internal adjudication that took 30 years to work out because there were so many complicated rights to that. Uh, East of the Mississippi, which is based on the old English common law, which makes sense in New England, you know, you don't need to have a property of rights as much because it rains a lot. West of the Mississippi, it doesn't. And so in East of the Mississippi, you have a riparian right to surface water, which again means you don't get to own the water, but you have a use of right that you have a right to use it. And now there are some restrictions here and there, uh, and, it, it, and we'll talk about that in just a second. West of the United in the Western United States, especially in the old Spanish theory, water appropriative rights are first in time, first in right. That stems from the Spanish old water law, and it really got established in the United States at Sutter's Mill when people started shooting each other over over diverting water as they were looking for gold. Finally, they calmed it down by saying who was first to divert the water 
is first and right to get the water. Has nothing to do with where you are on the stream. And you can imagine how that can lead to some complications. Now, one of the things that you've got to keep in mind too is the overall uses of water nationwide. Still to this day, irrigation, agriculture irrigation uses 60 to 70% of all water, no matter what container it's in. Municipal industrial uses are about 20 to 30%, and domestic livestock use use about 10. Domestic livestock use is significant because Generally speaking, for a groundwater well or using surface water for domestic and livestock purposes, you don't need a permit. You have a right to use it for that. Irrigation and municipal industrial require permits pretty much in every state. And guess what? Cities don't have, have rights over private property owners to that water and surface water, uh, which shocks a lot of people. Now, in surface water, we have what's called the American Rule of Reasonable Use. That means that you can take the water from the river to use it with a permit as long as it doesn't damage someone else along the river. Of course, definition of reasonable use varies from state to state. It gets complicated. And the simple for me is, of course, every time I want to use water, it's reasonable. And it just depends on what everyone else says about that. So reasonable is very subjective, which has made it difficult. The second thing that most states have is a beneficial use uh, concept. That means that the water must be used beneficially. But again, of course, every time I want to use water, it's beneficial. So how can you say it's not? Uh, and you get into some really complicated things. Like in Texas, we say beneficial use is the amount of water which is economically necessary for a purpose authorized when reasonable intelligence and reasonable diligence are used. Well, of course, my intelligence and diligence is always reasonable. So you can see right off the bat how it gets to be very convoluted in the beginning. Now, understand also about water, which most people don't think about. The geological containers relate to each other conjunctively. What does that mean? Some of you have ever walked in an old creek bed during the summer, especially in the West, the water will be warm and you'll come up and all of a sudden you'll feel cold water coming up through your toe. That's where the aquifer is feeding that stream. As you walk around, you pay attention, especially in the karst features, the the limestone creek beds and things, you'll see a little whirlpool on the side. That's where the stream is feeding the underground aquifer. So it continuously feeds each other. If you drill a water well close to the Colorado River, which I asked questions about that back in our last big drought, because the state didn't know how many water wells had been permitted up in the upper Colorado River Basin, surely it has an effect on the flow in the, in the river. And that's another one of the things that we try in our states to design our water policies to interrelate water, groundwater and surface water. But we've not yet accomplished that in a manner in which makes sense for everybody. Now, you know, one, one of the things that's important is to move water from wet areas to dry areas. But you can imagine the resistance that people have to moving that water, especially if it's groundwater, even if they can be paid for it. What we don't even think about, assume that you have a policy that would allow that movement without taking three years to get a permit. People forget about the stark reality of right-of-way acquisition. We don't have a water grid in Texas. We don't have water grids across the country, but in reality, there ought to be a water grid set up to where, that, where there's a wet area, you can transfer water easily to a dry area. But 
it takes some of you from Houston probably heard about it. I was an expert witness for the state of Texas on the Katy Freeway expansion. There were 30 miles of lawsuits about the valuation into town and 30 miles coming back the other way. Uh, it took us 10 years to expand the Katy Freeway just by, you know, a few feet on each side. So if we're going to have water problems in the western states and we want finally make the policy decision to move water from the wetter areas to the drier areas, we better start thinking about acquiring the right of way now because thank goodness we live in a country that the government can't take away our land without just compensation. Those are some things to think about. The other thing that's important is time is of the essence in all water transactions especially. In many states, if I want to transfer water to you, Justin, I've got a right to pull water out of the Rio Grande to water my onion crop, and I don't want to grow onions that year. And you're next door to me, and I want to transfer that right to you. Well, you probably need it that season, but in Texas, it's been running between one and a half to three years to process that permit. And so that's one of the reasons water markets are have so many problems around the country. Now, again, Realtors need to understand the dynamics of these water situations. Above all, because of the valuation uh, difference in, in properties, we advise our clients on what, how much to pay, how much to sell, what asking price. Now, that's a starting point, but we need to help them understand that if you look at the studies I've done, uh, and it's hard to do a study on water valuation because Nobody wants to, to disclose what they pay for their water rights. But if you take a look in the MLS systems I have around our state and others, you'll find that land with water sells for closed numbers that are exact, I know are correct, about 250 to 300% more than it does without water, sometimes 10 times as much. So it's really important to consider that, maybe more so important, of course, than even mineral rights. Uh, water is not a mineral. Water is unique. It's not a mineral like oil. Uh, people say water's the new gold, water's the new oil. It's really not because we're not here to mine water. And I can tell you this much as we've seen the, in my life, I've seen the oil price go up and down and drop drastically like it's done recently. Water values aren't going to go down. And so it's a very different type thing. We don't want to mine water, but we want to use it sustainably in some way in which makes sense for everybody, but still protects private property rights. Um, now, another thing we have a real problem with is in many of the states around the country, it takes a long time for a water rights case to be, to be processed through the courts. Some of the biggest cases have taken 20 years or more, and that's just ridiculous. I think that we need to have in our country private water law, water law courts, just like family law courts, because water is going to be the key to the success of our country by the 2030s. We might end up with a mega drought that's 35 years that basically wiped out the Anasazi uh, Indians and that native group uh, in the four corners around uh, 1000 AD. But the problem is, if you've got a bad water policy, how do you deal with it? Well, guess what? Somebody's got to step up and file a lawsuit. And the question that, that always haunts me is, is it fair that the huge burden of legal expense required to correct bad water policies be placed solely on the individual property owner? Uh, and that, just like, for example, Hawks versus U.S. Corps of Engineers about the ill-fated waters of the United States rule. Hawks was, was digging peat moss up in, Minis in, uh, in Minnesota, I think, 
and he was 120 miles away from a river, the Corps of Engineers said, oh, by the way, because of the conjunctive relationship with that river, 120 miles away, you've got to get a permit. Well, his permit process was a half a million dollars. And so luckily, the United States Supreme Court said, wait just a second, you can bring a suit against the Corps of Engineers, but they don't have to turn you down for the permit first. You know, they said, well, he can't sue us because he's not even been turned down yet. So, again, that's why NAR and our state and local boards are so vitally important to the future of America. Charles, let me ask you a couple questions here, if you don't mind. Sure. You referenced the the difference in value being significant. And so for a, a realtor to really kind of do the due diligence properly, where would you say that they should kind of begin to start searching? Is this something that you recommend they put on the on their sellers? Or is this something that you're encouraging, you know, listing agents to really go out and do the proper due diligence researching in order to uh, really help market a property at the highest value? I think I think both buyer and seller representatives need to understand that. And the problem is there's no MLS system that covers most farm and ranch transactions. And so it will help to first of all, for example, the studies I've done in the Austin Board of Realtors, San Antonio Board of Realtors MLS system that I'm a member of, you know, I can tell pretty much from the descriptions for closed data, but the way you start doing it, you go talk to the county agents, first of all, most areas in the country have a county agent that's tied to some land-based university. Those county agents can give you not closed sales, they can give you an idea of what, what water sells for. Um, and it's like anything else, you know, since it's not, we don't have any obligation to report those those type of values. You've just got to really dig in deep and interview as many people as you can uh, about that incremental value water adds. It's interesting to hear, you know, how much it affects a community. You know, where, where I'm out in the West here dealing in Colorado, New Mexico, it's mostly uh, for irrigation, you know, for livestock, for hay production, for crops. You know, we don't see a whole lot of the conversations that are involved with the value and the, the, the thriving uh, capability or lack thereof that a community can have with water rights. And so I'm just curious where you're at in Texas, are you seeing that um, 10% of the time, 50% of the time, how much of the water rights are you getting involved with that actually involve the municipalities as opposed to the rural landowner? It's really happening very, it's happening all across our state. And what's happening is since surface water is no longer the main source of water, why is that? Because, you know, it, we, you, to look at a full water policy, it's not just fresh water. It's also sanitary sewage, which is an oxymoron, and, and storm drainage. What's happened is because of downstream of all our major cities, the water in those rivers is really affluent. It's already passed through people's systems, through sanitary sewage system goes on through. In Texas and many Western states, surface water is already allocated up to the max, uh, and during a drought, it's overallocated. So we're back to relying upon groundwater, our main source. In San Antonio, a city that does not have any surface water, the San Antonio River is not adequate for the city. They purely depend on groundwater. But as they, as San Antonio being the seventh largest city in the country, they're having to reach out and acquire groundwater from other counties. Uh, the Vista Ridge Pipeline, for example, they uh, had leases with 3,500 homeowners in, in Burson and Lee counties, and they have 440 mile long pipeline. So I think you're seeing a real battle between urban and rural interests, uh, and you're going to see it more and more in the West. Uh, no doubt, uh, even in Houston, Texas, 
which some of y'all I know are from, one of the biggest source uses of groundwater in Houston is the city of Houston. Uh, as you know, Lake Houston up around Atascocita during the summer, it gets so polluted, you're not even allowed to swim or water ski in it. And so uh, I think you're going to see more and more of these. I think there's been an under, I've been a battle for groundwater between cities and rural areas for quite some time. Well, it's certainly important. You know, the first time I learned how important water rights were, I'll never forget. I was uh, helping a HOA, Homeowners Association, in Colorado, and they were kind of just going at each other. And one of the guys stood up and he said, man, water's for fighting over and whiskey's for drinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's one of those things they all say that uh, water, that, that, uh, that Mark Twain said, I think the best one that was my dear friend who's gone away, my mentor, David Weber, who passed away way too young at 72. He came from New Mexico, was the foremost, he was at SMU, uh, head of their Southwestern Studies graduate program. Uh, he said, water doesn't run downhill, it runs towards money. And that's exactly right. Um, nice, I like in that. Keep, in keeping with this, I think it's, we're, we're about to finish up here. I want you to remember as brokers, Okay, you under Article 11 of the NR Code of Ethics, which I hope you I want you to refer to and read. Bottom line is we have a duty to provide our clients with services that that meet our standards of practice and competence. In many states around the country now, realtors licensees are required to have geographic competence. I wrote an article in Texas Realtor Magazine about that back in November. Uh, it's very, very important. It changed our whole standards in Texas. In other words, if I sponsor an agent, I'm going to have to assess that agent's ability to be geographically competent in their area. But realtors shall not undertake to provide specialized professional services that's outside their field of competence. So unless you're a hydrogeologist, a lawyer, or someone else with that type of license, what we do as realtors is not give advice on what a water right is or isn't, we direct our clients to sources that can help them go through that complications. From that though, we have to know how to direct them. And that's where 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 I think is so important. And I try to draw the distinction between investors who think about water and agents. That's a great point, Charles. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, I know you also spoke on the topic of water rights during RLI's 2020 virtual national land conference uh, back in march and so for anybody that's listening that wants to watch the recording of that session you can access it through rli's new land expertise hub for members additionally i see that rli invited you to write an article for their terra firma magazine on water rights which our listeners can read in the summer 2020 edition thank you to everyone for tuning in to today's podcast if you are interested in learning about how RLI can help you become among the best land agents in the business through the expertise and camaraderie that they offer, please make sure to visit their website at rliland.com.